This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, helps you build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. Check out The Noom Kitchen for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. One of the things Justin Cremon remembers vividly about the day his mother was getting released from the hospital is the light. I remember it was like this insanely sunny day and just like the particular angle of the sun at the time, the room was like lit up like a, you know, like a jewel box or a light box or something. It was 2010. Justin was in his late 20s. His mother had been in and out of hospitals a lot with all kinds of health issues. Her immune system had been really weak ever since she got a very aggressive cancer treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma more than 15 years earlier. This time, a cold had turned into pneumonia, and she had been in the ICU for more than 10 days. But now she was better, ready to go home, and the sun was shining. So the whole atmosphere said, this is cheerful, right? Like, she made it through. And I totally expected her to tell me, like, how glad she was to be alive. Like, you know, what a gift you are, you know, to me or something like that, that sort of a talk. And she did have me sit down on the hospital bed next to her. But her next few words were not at all what Justin expected. I'm not doing this again. I'm not doing this whole hospital thing again. This was the last time. She told Justin what she wanted to happen the next time she got sick. We got plunged into like this pretty extensive conversation about the end of her life that I totally didn't want to have. Like, she let me know her wishes in detail. You know, like, I wanted to be like, what are we going to have for lunch (laughs) now that you're out? Or what are we going to watch on TV tonight? A few months after that, Justin's mom got another cold, which quickly got worse. She was in the hospital again, and Justin did everything she had asked. He quickly transferred her to hospice care, signed all of the paperwork. She died shortly after. The conversation they had had, it was exactly the talk we're told to have about the end of life, to be prepared. But, like, just from the point of view of the person going through it, the conversation made me feel terrible. Like, I, I hated it. And it made me feel terrible not just that day, but for months. And this is the part that I think is a little bit... Um, strange to talk about, but in a lot of ways, it ruined the time that we had left. Because after that talk, and this is kind of like a horrible thing to say, but um, I almost thought about my mom as dead. And I loved my mom a lot. And that was like, where her life ended for me. And I really went into like, a grief about her while she was actually still alive. Sometimes I wonder if if you had to have that conversation for her. So it's kind of the burden the living have to assume from the dying because the person who is dying needs to know that the other person is going to be okay and that they know how things are going to go down. And maybe it just felt like 
she had to tell you this because you're her son and she just had to make sure that it was all okay. Yes, but I also feel like many situations, right? Like that was obviously a choice she made and I wasn't in her mind to know what she was thinking. But many situations like this, I often hear it's the person who's dying who would rather not talk about it as well. And there's this imposed obligation to do it. Like we're doing a better job at it if we're being honest about it. And that was the question I had. Are we real? Like, what does it really do? Like, do we have to do that? Can we really prepare for death, for the grief it brings, in a way that is helpful? Does the end get any easier when people know it's coming? On today's episode, dress rehearsals for death, being there for our loved ones at the end, managing grief and finding humor in the darkest moments. So ever since Justin Cremon had the talk with his mom about her end-of-life decisions, he's been wondering about these conversations and how helpful they are. He recently met up with somebody who took a very different approach, and he has this story. In 1991, Michael Klena was attending a 12-step recovery meeting in Baltimore when he noticed a guy across the room. He was tall, probably six feet tall, and lanky. And he had big round glasses. After the meeting, he walked over to the man and introduced himself. The man's name was Bob Slade. And Michael was really nervous around him, mostly because he realized he was attracted to Bob. They had an awkward conversation that Michael has since deleted from his memory. But later that night... I was riding my bike home. I saw him at a red light and I was smiling at him. And it became clear to him that I was coming on to him. Because he smiled and laughed. I think he thought it was funny because I think he thought it was absurd. (laughs) Michael was 20 at the time. Bob was 39. The age difference made Bob reluctant to consider a romance with Michael. But they started driving around together at night, smoking cigarettes, eating junk food, and just talking. It was a time in Michael's life when he needed a friend. There'd been a lot of turbulence for him recently. All at the same time, I discovered that I had an alcohol problem and that I was gay, and I had to admit that to be true, but I didn't want to, and it was difficult for me. Bob was an older gay man who seemed to have it together. I learned that he worked for FedEx in the government sales office. He was a very good salesman, and the reason why he was so good at it is because he was an excellent listener. He would remember everything that we talked about. But Bob needed someone to listen to him, too. He was going through some turbulence of his own. We were sitting outside of the house and probably smoking cigarettes, and he told me that he was diagnosed with HIV a couple of years ago. At that time, in the early 90s, good treatments for HIV were not yet available. Even though Michael was devastated to learn this news about Bob's health, He interpreted the revelation as Bob opening the door to a romantic relationship. He was offering me the choice to say yes or to say no to that. I felt really honored that he said that to me. Michael kept thinking about that conversation all day. I went to sleep and I slept really poorly and I had a dream about Bob dying of AIDS. It was the only thing on my mind. 
Next morning, Michael woke up and called Bob. He told him the HIV diagnosis didn't bother him. He wanted to be with Bob. I loved him at that point already. I had fallen in love with him, and I think he loved me. So they had a great year together. Bob was on AZT, a drug used to slow the progression of HIV. But then he got really sick. He needed home health care and intravenous feeding. It looked bad. It looked like he was dying. But this is where things kind of took an unexpected turn. Because Bob didn't die. He turned the corner right after his birthday. And he got better and started eating again. And when he got well, I remember one day telling him, I said, I want to be with you for the next 30 or 40 years. He just said, we'll see about that. At that time, Bob was in an HIV support group. Since HIV was mostly terminal then, the group focused on coming to peace with death. But after Bob got better, he quit the group. Because he said that all of those people had quit their jobs and they were ready to die, and that he wasn't ready to die. Within a year, all of those people in the group were dead. But Bob wasn't, and he kept not dying. Not just from HIV, but this incredible string of life-threatening illnesses that followed his HIV diagnosis. It's by far the longest series of potentially fatal ailments I've ever heard of a person surviving. Bob had heart attacks, strokes, a neurological disease, cancer, emergency brain surgery, and on and on. In 1994, he had pneumocystis pneumonia, and then shortly after that, he had hepatitis. Many of the illnesses had nothing to do with HIV or the side effects from the medications. Bob was just all kinds of sick. Simply having Michael list the major illnesses took over 10 minutes. So sick and so thin. He had a heart attack in 1998. Oh yeah, 2005, that's when he got PML. That was really a doozy because the neurologist said he had six months to live. The couple kept documentation of all these illnesses. Bob was in the hospital so often for one medical emergency or another that being on death's doorstep started to become like a casual affair. One time Bob was having a heart attack, and he knew that he was having a heart attack. We were going to the emergency room, and we had been to emergency rooms so many times that he knew that he wasn't going to get any food, and he was really hungry. So on the way there, he asked me to stop at Roland Park Bakery and Deli, which is a place that I used to work, (laughs) so that we could get cheeseburger subs. I didn't want to do it, but um, I felt compassionate for him because, you know, having a heart attack is no fun. And it didn't seem like the kind of heart attack that was going to kill him, like a run-of-the-mill heart attack, like the kind that we weren't going to, you know, get upset about. Michael has version after version of this story. Another time, they were boarding a cruise together. This was in 2017. And Bob was about to faint. Michael told him, get it together. They're not going to let you on the ship if you pass out. They made it onto the ship. But on the boat, there was a woman who ate with them a lot of nights in the dining room. And one day she asked me if he was unwell. It made me think like, oh, well, like to other people, Bob doesn't look well. But to me, he looks the same. It was like almost to the point of being delusional, like you weren't seeing the person that was there. That's right. 
Was that a moment when you had to see him as sick or you didn't? I think I did see him as sick for a second. What was it like to get that glimpse? Well, it was disturbing. I do remember thinking to myself, he's both looking sick and maybe he is sick. Not long after that cruise, Bob got another diagnosis, lung cancer. Michael remembers it was Father's Day, 2021. Their life together didn't change that much after they found out. But Michael had a feeling this was different. That it was just one too many things. We never talked about it. We are like denial people. There was no facing death. Sweet, so who would kind of pull out of the conversation? Both of us. Bob always got medical treatment. He wasn't in denial he was sick. Just the whole death part. As Bob went through chemotherapy, they still talked about normal stuff every night. Michael's gossip from work, who Michael saw at the grocery store, what they were wearing. Did that external life that you were leading seem like conflicting with whatever you were feeling or thinking about inside? Yes, because he looked so sick all the time, but I didn't want to admit it was the end, and I didn't want to think it was the end. One night, while Michael was sleeping, he heard Bob say in a dream, I'm dying. And it was enough to tell him that Bob had the same fears Michael did, but neither of them said anything about it. And soon Bob was in the hospital, actively dying. I... Still thought he was going to be well and get well, but then when I went home, I got a call from some emergency room doctor who told me that I needed to bring the DNR paperwork down to the hospital. I had never gotten a call like that before. At the hospital, there was a moment when a palliative medicine doctor came to talk to Bob about hospice care. He told the um, doctor that he didn't want to die because he was going to miss our life together. But then he realized that he wouldn't be the one missing our life together. Ugh. That it would be I who is missing our life together. And that was it. The closest they ever got to talking about death. After that, Bob went into hospice. But during Michael's visits, they acted like nothing had changed. Like life was just rolling along. What did you talk about that week? regular stuff. I talked about my work. I talked about who was going to come and visit. I talked about what I was eating in the hospital. So we only talked about like living things. It was just the fact that you were talking about regular stuff better than those more serious conversations. Yes, because regular stuff allowed me to be in denial that this was the end. And that felt good. Yes, it did. It felt good. Bob died on December 17th, 2021. He was 70 years old. In your view, did going through all those dress rehearsals make the real thing easier or harder? I don't think it made it any easier. And the denial half was super helpful. It was. The denial half kept us normal, smiling and talking to one another and, you know, happy. Hearing this, I thought back to that conversation with my mom when she said, I'm not doing this again, and I had to face what was happening. It did make me sadder. Sitting with Michael, 
I thought about this idea that gets put forward a lot about death, that we should talk about it more, get comfortable with it, make peace, unearth every painful thing, that looking toward is better than looking away. But is it really? Does talking about death make your life any happier? Is it better than just pretending death isn't there? We always just lived like there was no tomorrow, and that was really a great way to live. And I'm (laughs) finding it not as easy to be doing that now. I have to think about the future now. So how is that? I don't like it. (laughs) I think the reason that ultimately I'm glad I had that conversation with my mom is that it took the guilt of her death off me. And I think it gave her the peace of mind that I'd do what she needed in the end. It didn't make the remaining months easier. But it was what we needed to let go. Listening to Michael's story, what occurred to me is there's not a right way to do this. A major illness forces you onto this weird little island where the rules of living don't apply. You have to figure out your own way to cope. Michael and Bob not only did that for 30 years, but they had a really good time. Before I said goodbye to Michael, I checked with him one more time if he had any regrets. Now that Bob is gone, is he glad he took the path of denial instead of coming to terms with death while Bob was still alive? And his answer was simple. I'm glad about it. That story was reported by Justin Cramon. This cycle of illness, hospitalizations, and close calls that Justin described reminded me of a friend of mine, Dan Gottlieb. He's a therapist we used to work together when Dan hosted a radio show. Dan has been living with quadriplegia for decades, since he had a car accident in 1979. He uses a power wheelchair to get around, and he has a lot of very serious health complications, like frequent infections or skin breakdown, that can become a matter of life and death really fast. I asked Dan how all of this has changed how he views life. Every time I get confronted with death, I feel closer to it. You know, I often quote Sartre, who said, you should live with death on your shoulder. And I do. It's there. It's present all the time. But it doesn't mean... I'm mourning myself, or even that I'm sad. You know, death whispers in my ear, Hey, Dan, time is limited. Don't screw this up. Pay attention. I joke about death a lot, about my death. I guess as a way of preparing myself for death. You know, I was in the hospital uh, getting surgery, and a nurse came in one morning and said, How do you feel? And I said, take the sheets off my feet. And I said, look at my toes. And she did. And I said, is there a tag on any of my toes? So (laughs) she said, no. And I said, I'm having a good day then, you know? (laughs) Uh, that's, That's how I've been going through it. You know, <laughs> And how do you talk to your loved ones about this? They've been there with you. 
I mean, I've been there with you where, you know, we all get on the phone and we text each other and we're saying, how's Dan? What's Dan doing? What's going on? So what's the conversation there? You know, they say, my kids say that I'm way past the nine lives thing. I'm up to about 15 or 20. They've known about my pending death since they were five and six years old. It's been ever-present for them. And yes, we do talk about it. And we joke about it. I was driving with them a couple of years ago and told them that you know, I wanted to donate my organs when I died. And they went through my body organ by organ and decided that they were all worthless. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's how we talk about it. And how does humor help you in all of this? You've always had that about you. I remember one year you told me that for the summer you bought a plot at a cemetery and you also bought season tickets to the Phillies. So either way, you would have somewhere to go. <laughs> so <laughs> as long as I've known you, that's what you do. Yeah. How does it help you? Well, you know what laughter does to us. You know, all the chemicals it releases in our brain. So the more I joke about my death, my fear of dying diminishes. I've got a different relationship now with my death. And it's less threatening, less scary. And I am deeply saddened by the fact that my future is so short, not knowing whether it's a day or a decade, but it's short and I love living. Dan Gottlieb is a therapist. He's written several books, among them The Wisdom We're Born With. Coming up, helping people support loved ones at the end of life. The love she was giving, just being there, was the most beautiful gift that anybody could ever receive. That's next on The Pulse. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about grief and facing death. When a loved one is dying and near the end, family members usually want to be there for them, right by their side. But how do we show up for those moments? How do we manage our own emotions, our own grief, while staying strong for our loved one? There are people who can help navigate this unfamiliar terrain. They are known as end-of-life doulas or death doulas. We usually associate doulas with birth, the beginning of life. But death doulas assist people during a very different transition. Reporter Carrie Sheridan recently met one of them when she had a death in her family. In the last several years of her life, my grandmother Olga lived a few miles away from me in Sarasota, Florida. I called her Mima. About once a week, I'd go pick her up at the assisted living place. We'd go for a drive, get a milkshake, and just chat. One time, I surprised her by bringing along my recorder. Recording? I'm recording you. No. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is the mic right here. At that time, she was 96 and a lot of fun. You should have told me before. <laughs> That day, we were driving to the butcher shop. We were on a mission to recreate a family recipe, a soup that her Ukrainian parents always made. Kapusta, they called it. Kapusta? Kapusta, oh, yeah. yeah. Cabbage soup. Oh. Kapusta. Oh, okay. Sometimes she'd say this hearty, healthy soup was the reason she lived so long. But on this day, she also told me they ate it a lot, and it wasn't her favorite. Sometimes she'd protest. Soup again? And my father said, eat. Because he loved it, you know. (laughs) My grandma lived a long time. She was fortunate to be in good health for most of her life. In March, we celebrated her 100th birthday. All her children and grandchildren came. We had giant balloons and a big yellow cake. Olga lived in the moment, loved to make jokes, walked every day, and never complained about anything. About two months after she turned 100, she got sick. The first sign was delirium. Staff said she walked out in the hallway in the middle of the night and cried out for someone to go get her husband down at the tavern. She said he needed help. Her husband, my grandfather, had died more than 20 years ago. Eventually, we learned Olga had a urinary tract infection. That's what led to the delirium. She was hospitalized, got some antibiotics, and did better for a bit. But then she declined again. And my mother and I decided hospice care was the best option. It focuses on managing people's pain and symptoms to make sure they're comfortable. And once Olga was settled back into her room, as she slipped in and out of being awake, I saw her do things that I recognized from my years as a health reporter. She was fumbling a lot with her blanket or sweater. So that condition uh, is actually called carphology. Um, which is grasping at the bedclothes, or flocillation, which is grasping at something imaginary. That's Fergus Shanahan, a physician in Cork, Ireland, and the author of a book called The Language of Illness. He had proposed a simpler term for it based on literature. You actually go to some of the great writers and thinkers uh, who described what they saw. And Shakespeare was one from 400 years ago, and it appears in Henry V, the play, The Death of Falstaff. 
In Shakespeare, a woman describing Falstaff's death says, I saw him fumble with the sheets and play with flowers and smile upon his fingers' ends. I knew there was but one way. And so Fergus wrote a paper suggesting we call this the Henry V sign. Doctors, nurses all recognize this is a common sign that a person is near the end. I had reported on this, but I had never experienced being at the bedside of someone who was dying. And now I was watching my grandmother reach for things that weren't there, pulling on her sweater and blanket. And I was wondering, is that the Henry V sign? Are those Falstaff's hands? Is this the end? And sometimes she would wake up and say she'd just cooked a meal with my dad, who died of heart failure five years ago. And I'd wonder, is she delirious from the infection, or is she being greeted by people on the other side? My mom was there, too, all the time. She and my grandma were really close. My mom stepped out for a couple of hours one afternoon for a break and to get some things done. I was by the bedside alone, and that's when my grandmother's agitation began. She seemed to be sleeping, and then all of a sudden she would cry out, almost shout, and I had never heard her yell before. She'd grab my hand really hard, twist my wrist, dig her nails into my palm, until it passed, whatever it was. I didn't know what to do. A hospice nurse came in and talked to me about upping Olga's pain medication a bit. I agreed, yeah, let's do it. And then in the hallway, a woman appeared. She had short white hair and wore rose-colored glasses. I didn't know her. I didn't know why she was there. But she had a sense of urgency about her. She was an employee of the hospice company, and she was there to talk to me. When I met you, Carrie, and you were next to your grandmother, I perceived things. It might be very difficult for you to understand. I caught up with her a few weeks later to talk about that day and everything that happened. My name is Lejean Francis Hasbach Ware, but I go by Corey, and my parents named me that because my mother would have an accent to say sweetheart in Spanish, so she said, okay, corazón, it's too long, I'll just call her Corey. Corey is an end-of-life doula. She's 78, and she was born in the U.S. Her mom was American. Her dad was from Mexico. The family moved to Mexico when Corey was a child. She grew up there and trained as a cardiac nurse. I've been a nurse for 60 years, and I have never let one of my patients die by themselves. Never. Never. She says that's the tradition in Mexico. The nurse is there when the patient dies, and afterwards they wait until the family arrives. And you stay there. You have to stay there till uh, the family comes and picks them up. And you're not allowed, you know, to put them in a, a funeral truck or car or something. No, it has to be the family. It's so old-fashioned and respectful. So sometimes I had to be with a patient 24 hours because he was my patient. He died with me, and I couldn't leave him alone. Corey also says interacting with villagers near her father's hometown of Chihuahua gave her a deeper understanding. As part of her nursing training in Mexico in the 1960s, she had to visit a lot of very remote towns and villages to provide medical care. She would interact with traditional healers who were eager to collaborate. You're a nurse, so you teach us things, and we will teach you things. I saw that they used their energy. So I said, explain that to me. And they taught me how I could feel my energy, how intense it was, and how to make it work better and better. 
So I learned how to do healing touch, and I learned how to do therapeutic touch. So Corey's a devout Catholic and a holistic nurse. She brings these two traditions to her work with the dying. A lot of people can say they're ready for it, or they accept their disease, their illness, their sickness. But when the time gets closer, everybody says, I'm scared. And that's when you accompany them all the way. When they don't have a loved one near them, I'm the one that takes their hand and holds them tight. And I explain to them, this is going to be a transition, just beautiful, relax, and accept it. She told me that the day she came to my grandmother's hospice care room, she saw something she described as floating energy. So I saw this beautiful flow of love going back and forth from Carrie and her grandmother. So it was a little bit hard for me to understand, you know, there's so much love. Why is Carrie, you know, so uptight or so... I don't know, nervous maybe, I don't know how to say it, until I explained to her that the love she was giving, just being there, was the most beautiful gift that anybody could ever receive. Corey told me to stay close to my grandmother, hold her hand, tell her I love her, talk about the fun memories we had, remind her she's not alone. She explained that what I was seeing, the occasional visible discomfort, the yelling, it was a natural process. My grandmother was working some things out. We have to be respectful and we have to be patient with our loved ones because they are fixing their own little issues in a spiritual manner. Maybe somebody hurt their feelings when they were younger or older and in their spiritual mind, because they're already transitioning. So they go back to that time and say, you know what? You hurt me. You hurt my feelings. Sometimes the other person might say, I didn't even know you. I hurt your feelings. Yes, yes, you did. So I want to go in peace. So I forgive you. Because just as you're fixing all the funeral things and the papers and all the legalities that has to be done, they are fixing their spirit. So don't rush them. Please don't rush him. Hearing those things was just so helpful. I mean, without Corey coming in at just the right moment, I wouldn't have known how to be there for my grandmother. And Corey just told me how. And that's what end-of-life doulas are there for, to support the living and the dying during those moments. Chris Kington Barker is director of outreach at the International End-of-Life Doula Association. The whole idea is to renormalize the end of life for everybody, because it, it truly is a very natural part of the life cycle. And the sadness behind that is, is a real part of the life cycle as well. But the two don't have to be misery. She says they've trained more than 6,000 doulas over the years. And a lot of the work is about translating what's happening to family members. If you think about how many times we misinterpret each other just in our daily living, right? How can we not misinterpret people when they're in their dying too? So the misinterpretations leave impacts and scars on people's souls sometimes. And that's the sad part. Chris says interest in death doulas is on the rise, but many challenges remain. Hospice only provides nurses for a couple hours a week, leaving much work to be done by the family. 
and the cost of a doula isn't paid for by Medicare or most private insurers. But for those who have access to doula services, the relationship often doesn't end when the person dies. My grandmother died the morning after Corey visited us. My mom was by her side. Corey had said to call her any time, so a few days later, I did. Carrie, oh, oh, I'm so happy to hear. <laughs> and once again, she knew just what to say. And remember how I told you, just be so proud of the love that you gave your grandma. It was so beautiful, Carrie. You never let go of her. Yeah. That's the beauty of it, Carrie. Corey helped me understand that just as the long life of my grandmother was something to celebrate, being there with her at the end was something so special, too. That was Carrie Sheridan reporting. She covers health for public radio station WUSF in Tampa, Florida. A multimedia exhibit at the Humboldt Forum in Berlin, Germany, tackles big questions people have around death and dying. David Blankenstein is the project manager for the exhibit, which is called Infinite, Living with Death. One thing the exhibition would like to stress is that end of life is a longer process. It's not a couple of minutes or or hours or days but uh, it takes a long time and is a process also of detachment. The exhibit features 12 people from around the world who talk about their work in end-of-life caregiving. There is Mike Kelly. He is a Schwahamal elder from British Columbia, Canada. Preparation to cross over is mental, spiritual, and emotional And Noreen Chan, a doctor of palliative care in Singapore. So to me, this is a glimpse into the human nature that most of us never get to see. I often speak to my patients and families about the analogy of a plane that's coming into land. You've been on a long flight. Parts of it have been really bumpy. But you're coming into land now. And what I hope for is to give you a soft and gentle landing. Rachel Itun is a spiritual companion for the dying in Jerusalem. People want to be touched and embraced, but sometimes the family will shy away. They're afraid and don't want to touch them. But I say, on the contrary, caress them as much as possible. People want it. People want to leave the world with forgiveness. Thich Thien Win is a Buddhist monk in Dong Dap, Vietnam. I will remind them, in this world they were born empty-handed. Back to ashes and dust, they also go empty-handed. For Confucius, life and death are said to be one big thing. Monks in Buddhism see death as only a change of state. Some of the caregivers also offer a broader perspective on how we should think about death. Here is Miriam Rios. She is an end-of-life caregiver in Guatemala. I'm convinced that everybody has to be prepared for death. Sometimes we talk about it as a joke, but we don't talk about it consciously. What comes next after it happens? And then the other issue is that we are living longer and longer. People are getting older and older, but it is not somehow being matched up with living better. So many people are living with severe disabilities. They are living alone or in isolation, away from their families. And I think these are problems that we need to grapple with. 
about what it means now to be living so long and dying so slowly. Those were end-of-life caregivers featured in an exhibit called Infinite, Living with Death. It's on display at the Humboldt Forum in Berlin, Germany, through the end of November. Alan Hinnich produced this segment. Coming up, how to help people whose grief doesn't diminish, even after a very long time. I had almost become agoraphobic, like I really just did not socially want to engage with many of my friends or family. Finding a path back to living, that's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Their carbon steel cookware combines the best of cast iron and stainless clad, gets super hot, and is tough enough for grills or open flames. Remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about grief. For most people, the pain of losing a loved one diminishes with time. That's something therapist Dan Gottlieb and I talked about. People heal. Broken hearts heal with scar tissue. I, I remember after my sister died, I was driving near Philadelphia, and I had some extra time, and I pulled off the road right next to a beautiful river. And it was a bright, sunny day, and I was just looking at this river and the background and just marveling at the beauty. And in that moment, I thought of my sister and how much she would have loved being there. That triggered sadness. And then I remembered all of the things we did together in nature. And I felt joy. I felt like I was not alone in that moment. I think that's kind of the face of healing. But for some, 
the pain of loss doesn't get better. The grief stays for years and years, just as raw and heart-wrenching as it felt in the beginning. It interferes with their lives and other relationships. And now this type of mourning has a name, prolonged grief. It became an official diagnosis last year. It was a controversial decision with a lot of discussions over what is, quote, normal when it comes to grieving and whether we're pathologizing a process that feels different for different people. But the hope is that the diagnosis will lead to better treatments and help for people who are dealing with this. Alan Yu has more. Amy Cazola Kern was 49 when her mother was diagnosed with cancer. It was a hard time for her and her brother Chris. They were very close growing up. We're a year and a day apart. He's my only sibling. So we're almost like twins practically. One day, they took their mother to chemotherapy together. That night, Amy and Chris talked before they went to bed. The next day, Amy got shocking news. Her brother's heart had stopped. He died on December 1st, 2016. It was hard to wrap her head around this. Chris had been athletic and healthy. Later that same month, on December 28th, Amy's mother died. For the first year, it was just a lot of business associated like with estates and moving and life changes. And then about two years later, I just was feeling really overwhelmed. Before all this happened, Amy liked being around other people. She used to make weekend plans for her husband and daughters. She loved to cook. And then it just all stopped. I had almost become agoraphobic. Like, I really just did not socially want to engage with many of my friends or family. Her family and friends tried to help. They stopped by or brought meals. She got so much food, she had to donate a lot of it to charity. They tried to get her to socialize again. My husband, he just kept saying, well, let's do this or let's do that. And my answer was always no. She felt sad and hopeless. She cried a lot and also had trouble sleeping. I had serious insomnia and it was a very strange phenomenon because I would wake up at four o'clock every night and a lot of the time I couldn't get back to sleep. She could not move on from her deep grief and she says people who knew her could tell. I had to go to the grocery store and I noticed people they would see me and walk away. And so I started going into the grocery store with my AirPods on. So A, I didn't have to talk to people and B, people could see I had my AirPods on. So (laughs) I didn't feel so bad that people were walking away. It took a lot of effort for her to do things that in the past would have made her happy, like a month-long trip to Europe after one of her daughters graduated from high school. Amy languished in her state of deep grief for years. Eventually, she realized she needed help, so she tried therapy. One therapist wanted her to focus on her relationship with the people who had died. Another wanted her to try keeping a journal and plan for the future. Those approaches did not help her. About three years after her mother and brother died, She looked around online and heard about something called prolonged grief. What she saw rang true to her and how she felt. 
she went to the closest therapist she could find who specialized in treating prolonged grief. She had to drive for two hours, but she says it was worth it. From the first session that I did, I just felt like someone was speaking a completely different language to me in terms of the approach. The therapist asked her questions like, do you enjoy time with friends and family? Have you been reluctant to plan for the future? And I felt like so relieved because for the first time in almost three and a half years, there was a professional asking me really profound questions. One of the exercises she had to do was very painful and emotionally draining. She had to record herself talking about how she first found out about her brother's death and listen to it over and over again. Before I went to bed every night, I would just put my headphones in and listen to it and cry my brains out, basically. (laughs) It's a really exhausting activity, and I realized that I had to do it at the end of the day. And I had to force myself to do it at first. But it helped. She recalled some of the memories she had repressed from that day. For instance, she remembered that she had spent half an hour or so with her brother's body before taking him to the funeral home. I felt better about that. I don't know why. But I felt better knowing that I had taken time to be with my brother before he left my parents' house. She finished the full course of therapy, which was four months. She learned some tips she still uses today. For instance, whenever December comes around and the anniversaries of her brother's and mother's deaths, she takes steps to manage her emotions, like taking a long walk, listening to music she enjoys. The diagnosis of prolonged grief might be new, but people have been suffering with these issues for a long time, says Harley Priggerson. I've been doing this research since 1995, at least, and almost every day of my life, I get an email from someone asking for help. Holly drafted the assessment tool that Amy's therapist used during Amy's first visit. She's a professor of sociology in medicine at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York. Prolonged grief is that enduring reaction of yearning and pining like 20 years later, feeling like it was just yesterday that this person died. And all these triggers of your loss derail you throughout the day because you're constantly thinking about, oh no, you know, I really wish that person were here. I miss that person so much. Holly and other researchers estimate that this affects just 4% of the population. It's not really clear what causes this, but people who have very close relationships to the person who died are more at risk, according to research. Years ago, therapists would just treat prolonged grief as depression. But Holly and other researchers realized that for some people, that just did not work. And they say, I've tried antidepressants, and I'm still... I wake up and I just miss this person so much, I don't even want to live without this person anymore. So she started to look for other approaches. She worked on defining prolonged grief and developed a scale to distinguish who is grieving normally and who is suffering from prolonged grief. Like Holly, Kathy Shear has studied grief for years. She's a psychiatrist at Columbia University. 
She developed the four-month therapy program Amy went through. She and her colleagues suggested that prolonged grief is a little like post-traumatic stress disorder. They adapted treatments for PTSD with some tweaks. PTSD, we're looking to reduce the overall level of anxiety and fear. Whereas in grief, we're really looking for ways for the person to accept the reality of the death because that's what they need to live with. That's how they came up with the exercise where the person in grief talks about how they heard about the death for 10 minutes and listens to it over and over. Death is the beginning of the the absence. And so it's more that being able to tell themselves a kind of story or narrate the story of the death in a way that makes sense, in a way that has some meaning for them. And the goal is to help people with prolonged grief get to that point. Most of us adapt naturally to whatever happens in our lives. And we make the assumption that these people have that capacity as well, but that something is standing in their way. Kathy and her colleagues tested that treatment in 2001 and found that it worked. Ever since, they've built on that research and trained therapists and social workers on the therapy program. Holly Priggerson is working on a different approach to treating prolonged grief, which involves medication. She's testing if naltrexone, a drug approved to treat opioid and alcohol use disorders, could bring relief. The idea came from neuroscience research, showing that when people yearn for a loved one who had passed, some of the reward systems in the brain become active. Naltrexone blunts the reward system a little. So for the small proportion of people who could not get past this yearning, maybe a drug that addresses the craving could help. There has been some preliminary research on a handful of patients in the US and in Brazil. Psychiatrist Vivian Nushaya Oliveira is working with Holly on those trials from her practice in Brazil. She has seen patients with prolonged grief for a few years. Some of these she treated with naltrexone, along with therapy and medicine for depression and anxiety. Her colleague translated for her. Patient who wasn't able to feel any pleasure in life starts feeling that. To drink a coffee with a friend, to play with the, the grandkids, they can feel pleasure again. Holly and Vivian are working on clinical trials in the U.S. and Brazil. Amy Cazola Kern finished her therapy for her prolonged grief in 2020, when pandemic lockdowns were still in place. And she could slowly feel the fog lift. She joined online gatherings with her friends and family. Slowly, as the restrictions lightened, I could slowly ease back into being my more sociable self. She had a better sense of her own self-care needs and what boundaries she wanted to set. She was able to sleep normally again. She felt better, like she was able to plan for the future. And she made a new goal for herself, to get a master's degree in social work. She became one of Kathy Shear's students at Columbia and got her degree last year. She is not planning to pursue this as a career, but she wants to be fully able to help people who are grieving. I will never be a therapist. It's kind of late in my life to career change to that degree, but 
I'm hoping to start some grief support groups, which I think could be really helpful. That story was reported by Alan Yu. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. Support for NPR and the following message come from Edward Jones. What is rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. Edward Jones Financial Advisors are people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This message comes from NPR sponsor State Farm. In the market for small business insurance, State Farm agents can help you create a personalized plan that fits your business needs and budget. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.